TJ, there's something very important that we need to talk about. There is? What is it, Joe? Quick, tell me. Time is running out. This will be the last chance that we get to ask our fans to order their very own Movie Byte t-shirt. So what you're saying, Joe, is that if anyone loves us or wants to support us in what we do in the upcoming reboot of our show, maybe they should go to moviebyte.com slash t-shirt and get in their order, and they should probably do it before Monday, August the 10th. Is that what you're saying? That is exactly right, DJ. See, these shirts are available only for a limited time. They come in Movie Byte Red or Space Gray, and they have the Movie Byte artwork you've come to know and love. Yeah, we really appreciate all the support and the listeners that we've had over the years, and we really hope that you'll place your order and enjoy the shirt. Now, Joe, I think that we should probably actually review a film, which is what people are, are listening to this mm. podcast for in the first place. What do you think? Mm, yeah, I think so too, TJ. So let's get started. Clark, uh, on record, have you ever met anyone who lied to Mission Impossible 2? Um, uh, okay, I, I, I've <laughs> met the evil half of my brain likes Mission Impossible 2. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's a bad movie, objectively, but there is a part of me that enjoys it uh, as a piece of ridiculously campy entertainment. Dodge this. I am the father. I'm here on a mission of mercy. There's only one god, man. And I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. Let's put a smile on that face. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Open the pod bay doors, huh? I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. The real world. This is episode 147 of the Movie Bite Podcast, a show where we talk about movies, movie reviews, movie news, trailers, old action stars, and more. I'm TJ, your host, and your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to see if you can tell if Tom Cruise has aged at all in the past 20 years since the first Mission Impossible film. And joining me today, he has accepted his mission. It is Joe Darnell. How are you, Joe? Hey, TJ. Thank you. Uh, that was one of the best intros I've ever had. Oh, really? <laughs> I didn't say much about you. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, pretty spectacular. That's okay. Pretty, that's a different ch- you know, change of pace. Good. How you doing, Joe? It's just me. It's just you. Just who we are. No yeah. fancy smancy titles. Well, actually, it's not just me and you, though, because we have a guest today. We have with us to discuss this mi- this impossible mission from straight from the IMF headquarters, it is Clark Douglas. How are you, Clark? I suppose I'm you probably good. can't tell tell us how you are, though, or you'd have to kill us. That's actually true. Um, but uh, in, in lieu of that, why don't you have this rabbit's foot? Okay, the rabbit's foot. Yes, the rabbit's foot. I actually watched that movie a few days ago. Uh, we did uh-huh. a whole big uh, podcast spectacular on three of those films. Uh, so, yeah, the, the rabbit's foot. We never learned what that was exactly, I don't think. No, the great MacGuffin of this series, the yeah. rabbit's foot. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, um, I think that later on, we're all going to have a lot to say about this franchise and this film. Um, and I, I take it Clark from your review, spoiler alert, you may have enjoyed this film just a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I really did. I guess I'll save the rest of it for yes, a little while. Yes. Now. We'll, we'll, yes, be, we'll be getting to very that. Enjoyable. J- Joe, Joe, your, your opinion though, is a, is a deeply kept secret. Nobody knows yet how you feel about the film. Hmm. I, I may have spoiled how I feel about it on Twitter, but you, your your, your secret is deeply kept. Hmm. Under wraps for now. Yes. 
Well, um, see, I got nothing for a transition, <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, Spider-Man somehow was commissioned by the IMF to possibly have a much larger role, and it's all kept very tightly under wraps, but mm. possibly by the IMF he's been commissioned to have a much larger role in Civil War than they initially reported. Tom Holland, who will be playing Spider-Man in Captain America Civil War, uh, and while it was much uh, originally reported to be a cameo, now reports suggest it may end up being a much larger role. Reports have stated that actor Tom Holland was seen on the set of Captain America Civil War shooting his cameo as Spider-Man for just a few days. This made us think he was most likely only doing a very small cameo in the film, despite earlier reports suggesting he'd have a sizable role in the film due to the comic storyline. Um so the the article goes on to say that uh, the reports are saying that he's going to have a much larger role now in the film, and uh, possibly. And uh, yeah, so Clark, I don't think that we've talked about this idea with you, or maybe we have. I don't remember of of the the Spider Spider Man coming back to Marvel, sort of. While Sony maintains some control, Marvel has a lot of control over this character now. Uh, so I'd lo- I'd love to get your thoughts on all this. Um, I'm bored of it already, honestly. <laughs> Uh, I, I feel like Sony sort of had their chance with Spider-Man and sort of wrecked it. Um, yep. What really bugs me most about this is that they're starting again with an origin story. Mm-hmm. Uh, that 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 strikes me as a really tedious way to go about that since we've already done it twice. But <laughs> oh yes, you know, um, it, it's nice, I guess, as a Marvel Comics fan to have Spider-Man uh, joining up with the Avengers and these other characters mm-hmm. as he has done in the comics in the yes, past. Yes. Uh, that's that's pretty nifty, but um, you know, uh, it's hard to get that excited about anything Spider-Man related at this point. After the way that Sony has just completely fumbled yeah, everything Spider-Man yeah. related in in recent years. So you don't think that now that he's essentially back in the Marvel fold, that Marvel can bring some of their great sensibilities to the character and make it okay? My issue with Spider-Man being a big part of Civil War is that Civil War is starting to sound ridiculously overcrowded to me. Spider-Man mm-hmm. 3, ring any bells? Uh, but no, yeah, it does. Worse. And, you know, um, I have the same concerns about the upcoming Batman versus Superman movie. Uh, for uh, sure. Just that they're trying to do entirely too many things in one film. And that's what Civil War is starting to feel like. Like, they're trying to stuff three movies worth of plot strands <laughs> and characters into a single film. And yeah. um, it's hard to imagine them finding enough time to really tell that story well. Well, and it's just the whole idea of we haven't really been properly introduced to this version of Spider-Man on the one hand, but on the other hand, who wants to do another origin story? Boring. But but really, it almost feels like why we, we really need a solo film for Spider-Man, this incarnation of Spider-Man, as, as much as I hate to say that, in order for it to make any sense for him to be in Captain America Civil War. Otherwise, we have the the baggage of having to introduce us to this incarnation of Spider-Man, in addition to all the other things going on in Civil War. It feels like uh, Marvel has sort of fallen all over themselves because now they have access to Spider-Man. It's like, oh, we got to get him in our universe now because we, we've got him back, and, and it's good, and everybody loves Spider-Man. Who doesn't like the Spider-Man? That's what it feels like to me. Well, and I'll say, too, as somebody who read the Civil War comic book storyline years ago, this is, at least in comic book form, a big, long, complex story. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ideal format for something like this would be like a 12-hour miniseries. <laughs> right. But 
Um, given, you know, the nature of these things, it has to be a two or two and a half hour movie. And there's going to be a lot of stuff just to set up. I mean, to even get to the part of why they want to have a civil war in the first place. Right, right. Um, and then to actually have the whole full blown thing in the same movie, it's, it's a little crazy to me that they're trying to do this in a single film, but. And then, you know, adding in all these other characters on top of that. Right, right. And this is where I think perhaps um, some tension came in between Joss Whedon and the studio that I know when we talked about um, uh, the Avengers uh, Age of Ultron, that we felt a little tension in that film. And I think that we were seeing a little bit like I think I would guess if Marvel had had their way, there would have been a lot more tension ending the film, setting up Civil War, which now it feels like they have to to get back to that point because it felt like we we were sort of headed down that road. And but then they resolved everything. And, mm-hmm. and, and so it feels weird that we're going back into civil war territory. And I wonder if that doesn't play a part in this all as well. So I yeah. don't know. And I will say, you know, I, I wasn't super crazy about Ant-Man, but one of the things that I did like about it was that it had like five main characters mm. and mm-hmm. that was about the extent of it. Um, it, it that felt almost like a small cast in contrast to <laughs> it's a funny lot of what when we've been seeing five main characters and it feels yeah. like a small cast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what are you thinking, Joe? I don't know what to think anymore because Marvel and uh, working in cahoots with Sony pictures to do a yet another Spider-Man. I honestly don't know what to expect. If we were seeing like a film mashup of Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield versions of Spider-Man on screen in this, uh, you know, merge over into the Avengers land, I think it would be more offensive. It'd be more boring. It'd be more confusing and just disgruntling. But what we're really getting is just an altogether new actor playing a part in a bigger scheme. So it doesn't feel all that different. Like if I'm in the Barnes and Nobles, let's say, and I happen to be passing through the comic books aisle and I see two or three different interpretations of Spider-Man side by side by different artists and storytellers, there isn't a switch in my brain that says, no, that can't be right because this version of Spider-Man looks different. You know, that doesn't happen. I, I don't really care at this point. The face, the acting, um, they should make a difference, you know, like seeing a different performance. I'll grade and th- think through, I'll like rate this actor for his performance and what he can do may or may not surprise me and be pleasant. But I'm not really, a, I don't really know how to judge it without seeing it at this point. It's too early to tell. Yeah. Well, I mean, sure. I mean, we're, this is all speculation and this is our, this is about our feelings about it now. Like I'm, I'm you know, I'm I'm kind of with Clark, where it's like uh, this is whole this whole thing is just a bad idea and it's boring and why, why yeah. are we why are we doing this again? Right, um, and we yeah. certainly could get to a point where Civil War comes out and I'll go, man, those Spider-Man scenes were hands down the best part of the movie. We could, yeah, <laughs> you know, but I, I don't uh, see it, but I don't either. But you know, you never know. So who is Tom Holland? Do we know who Tom Holland is? I don't know that I've I've spent much time figuring out anything. No, about when I first heard his name, I I thought Tom Hollander, and I was like, wait. That would make an amazing middle-aged Spider-Man, <laughs> but alas, that was not the case. Uh, no, Tom Tom Holland has not been in much of anything that I've seen. What has Tom Hollander been in? Because he looks really familiar. Tom Hollander, uh, he's been in the Pirates of the Caribbean right, okay. movies yeah, yeah, and yeah, Pride yeah, yeah. and Prejudice Got and it. lots of stuff. Yeah. Um, I was like, that would be a wonderful kind of short British Spider-Man. 
yeah, so Cut- Cutler Cutler Beckett is who he has played, the, the short guy that, yeah, okay. Got yep. it. Yeah, that that would have been kind of interesting. <laughs> um, but we know that's not, like, I actually thought, well, what if this were a little bit older of a Spider-Man, but they're they're definitely going for the even younger Spider-Man. Like, they're they're and, really pushing it down, down in age. An older Spider-Man, too, would be uh, a very interesting approach because even in the comics, we've never really seen like an older version of spider spider-man's like youthfulness is part of what defines him but i'm wondering what like a 40 year old spider-man would be like yeah i think i think um, too many people feel the character is essentially a teenage character and that's all he can ever be yeah that's that's sadly true yeah even though he was you know well out of the teenage years by spider-man 3 people still thought of him you know as as uh, as a teenager so anyway uh, I think that we should move on to other Marvel news, uh, and mm. that is that ABC president talks about the future of Marvel television, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and humans, Agent Carter in Hollywood, etc. So uh, let me just cut straight to the quotes. Uh, he said, we're doing this season of Agent Carter here in Hollywood. It's really opening it's, uh, it up because suddenly you have the glamour of the late 40s Hollywood, and you have Haley in that environment, and she's enjoying it. She's enjoying herself, I think is what that's supposed to be. Uh, and then um, – he says, S.H.I.E.L.D. itself has a really interesting next season. You probably know that Sky suddenly had superpowers. Uh, she's, uh, Joe, I know we're completely spoiling this for you. I assume you've kept up, Clark. No, I gave up on Agents oh, of S.H.I.E.L.D. midway no. through the first season. <laughs> Am I the uh, only one that loves that show still? Uh, yeah, they just know. keep producing it just for you, TJ. Anyway, uh, Sky Sky is an inhuman. We already know that. And that's, you know, if, you, if you're not caught up, it's shame on you. It's been, it's <laughs> That's been out for a while. Uh, I thought I thought the last season really went to a good place, and they're they're all prepped for the second season. Anyway, um, yeah. then he says, uh, "This is the uh, ABC Studios president." He says, "We would do more Marvel." Uh, Lee said, "Obviously, we will be very careful not to overpromise. Our studios make shows we do for Netflix. Daredevil is a big hit. Shield is a strong asset, uh, etc." So, uh, so compare and contrast the Agents of Shield. Then, Are, were you into Agent Carter, Clark, or Joe? I watched like the first two episodes of Agent Carter and liked it a good bit, but then got sidetracked by other stuff and never finished it. So Shame I need to go you. back and catch up with Agent Carter because I did like what I saw. Yeah, it was a good show. Yeah. Well, see, There's I too don't much have television, television I'm watching these days. It's on Netflix, yeah. Joe. It is? Oh, wait. No, that may, maybe I watched it on Hulu. Come to think of it, yeah, that's what I did. That's what I'm waiting for. <sighs> yeah, I think Netflix. like – some of the episodes had expired by the time I. Mm, yeah, you can't let them expire. I'm looking to yeah. see. It should be on Netflix by now, I would think. Agent Carter. It doesn't look like it is. Mm. Surely it will be. That's interesting. Bummer. Probably around the time the second season debuted. Yeah, well, it was a good show anyway. So I'm the only one here that can talk about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or Agent Carter. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Daredevil. I saw Daredevil. Certainly you guys love Daredevil. Daredevil's good. Yeah. I have seen about the first half of the first season. Of I haven't <gasps> been is, watching much TV lately. What is this podcast? Is this the show? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm just working late nights. Now, if you want to talk about deep space nine, I'm totally you with you, but I, that's not in the show outline, <laughs> but we can, we can add a line item no. here. Let's see. Uh, <laughs> I've been watching. I'm, I think I'm into the most halfway through the second season now. I'm like a third of the way through the second season right now. Cool. Uh, yeah. This is not really planned topic. No. <laughs> okay. We can go back to, to Marvel. Uh, yeah. So I'm happy with Mar- the state of Marvel's TV shows, and I'm happy that S.H.I.E.L.D. has got a third season, despite some people really being vocal about not liking it, apparently, as an audience. Agent Carter was knock- you know knocked it out of the park. Uh, I thought Daredevil, like, 
not just knocked it out of the park, but knocked it off the planet. I mean, it was fantastic. So I'm I'm really happy with with everything that uh, Marvel is doing in the TV uh, space right now. So um, that's uh, since you guys don't have anything to say about it, I'm sort of monologuing about it here. I'll, I'll, I'll also say that I'm looking forward to seeing um, what else they do with the uh, upcoming Netflix shows. Yeah, they have uh, they have a like Jessica Jones, um, which I don't. Again, I'm, I'm not very familiar with Marvel properties. The only Marvel properties I'm familiar with are the ones they've put on TV or uh, in the in the uh, cinema. Yeah. So, so um, it'll be interesting. But I every time, every single time, like with Ant Man, I know you didn't care for it as much, Clark, but I loved it, and I didn't know anything about Ant Man before. Um, yeah. You know, and and Iron Man, I didn't know anything about Iron Man until that came out, and and. Um, you know, I didn't know anything about Captain America. So, I mean, they're really just knocking it out of the park and it's a hard sell too. And you're like, well, I mean, we've got, you know, before Superman was ruined, so we've got Superman and, and Batman. Like those are my, those are my guys. That's who I grew up with. And, and, uh, you know, Marvel's bringing all these characters I know nothing about and making me love them. So I, it, right now it seems like it's hard for Marvel to go wrong here. Um, all right, so let's talk about something that I think we can all talk about, hopefully, <laughs> and that is uh, this video. I don't, I don't know if you guys have had a chance to see it, but I think that we can still talk about J.J. Uh, Abrams' visual style and how it might affect Star Wars The Force Awakens. This, this little sh- video, this analysis is fantastic. Um, I'm going to link it up in the show notes, which are at moviebyte.com slash mbpodcast slash 147. Um, so those will be in, that'll be in the show notes, and I highly recommend it. It is a great critique and analysis, and just general looking at J.J. Abrams' uh, camera style, his visual style, and and what he brings, the things that he does well, and the things where he has weaknesses. Um, and it's not just uh, it, you know he mentions the lens flares, but it's not just lens flares. It is a real good critique of the things that he gets right and the things that he gets wrong, and how that's going to affect Star Wars. So how much of the camera angles and you know, shaky cam and lens flares. Do we want to attribute to the cinematographer versus the director? Oh, it's the director, no doubt, um, because it it follows JJ around. Yeah, I think in, in most cases, unless you're dealing with like a, a rookie director dealing with a seasoned cinematographer and is kind of relying on the cinematographer to guide the way, you've got a director who knows how he wants his movie to look, and the cinematographer is doing his best to help him realize that particular look. Right. Having having been on on many sets, uh, you know, indie indie stuff, but um, it is the cinematographer's job to give the director the look that, he, that the director is describing, and it's right. the director's job to say this is the look I want. Now, there's no doubt that a good film is a collaboration between director and cinematographer. And um, I think there are also like a lot of instances where directors will seek out cinematographers who they know have provided a certain look in the past sure. and want them to recreate something like that. Absolutely, yeah. no doubt. And you know, you've got you know famous uh, cinematographers like Roger Deakins, for instance, who he's famous for his cinematography and, and the way he does things in a specific way but it's still his job to give the director the look that the director wants mm-hmm. and and you know jj uh i actually don't know what cinematographers he uses but the visual style certainly follows jj around uh so i think we can we can attribute and, and there are differences between the films uh i i think for sure star trek went to a really unhappy place with the super overuse of lens flares. Like I know JJ's always been a big fan of those, but he really cranked it up to 11 or, or a hundred with star star Trek in my opinion. Um, yeah. Um, super eight to me is hands down his best looking movie. Mm. And that's the one that gives me a little bit of hope for star Wars. 
Yeah, well, this this um, analysis I think may give you some hope for it, and and it may it may disappoint you in other ways. Like, yeah, this is definitely worth seeing. Like, he analyzes the trailer and he goes through lots of different shots and he shows the things that are common throughout that that JJ always tends to do and gravitate towards. And it's it, you know uh, I did get a, a little bit of a sense of disappointment in watching this film. Like, the, buried beneath the. Um, uh, the uh, bull twinkies uh, that is what the word he is similar word that he used in this in this uh video did you say bull twinkies bull twinkies um so so buried beneath that garbage that jj t- tends to layer onto his cinematography um is is a really good filmmaker like if he could just lay aside the the flash and the and the stylistic choices the unfortunate things that he does there's really good sensibilities in there um, and, and this, this video clearly demonstrates what they are. And he talked about how, look at this great scene and imagine it without all this camera shaking, without all these lens flares, without all the strobing lights. And you have great framing, great sensibilities of when and how to cut and where to show and what to show in the framing. And it's just too bad that, that he is so overwhelming with his, with the other things. So, the, so there is a great director in there. And, and I wonder if JJ is a sort of guy that we may see, if he if he can keep getting jobs <laughs> for for twenty years, maybe once he learns how to temper some of these things, that he, we may actually see his his best work may be well ahead of him. I'm wondering. And uh, just in case anyone is curious, the the guy who's shooting Star Wars is cinematographer named Daniel Mindel. Okay. Um, he did both of the Star Trek movies and mm. Mission Impossible Three. Mm. Um, Doesn't give me much however, hope for Star Wars, honestly. However, uh, a different guy shot Super 8. His name's Larry Fong. Okay. <laughs> and uh, that makes me wonder if that's why I like Super 8 cinematography better. Interesting. Because it's a different guy. Yeah, I'm with you, too. I preferred Super 8s. Yeah, and, and and that certainly – because, you know, like I said, uh, cinematography is a collaboration. You know, the, the, the visual result of the film is a collaboration between the cinematographer and the director. And mm-hmm. so there's certainly going to be elements of uh, what did you say his name was for Star Trek and Star Wars? Uh, Daniel Mendel. Daniel Mendel. There's certainly going to be elements of his personality in that film, like we've seen with Star Trek. So that doesn't give me a lot of hope that I'll I'll enjoy Star Wars in terms of cinematography that much. Um, and, and that's unfortunate. But on the flip side of that, we do have the example of Super 8 to demonstrate that when J.J. wants to align his style to a different time in a different place, a different era, that he knows how to match something that belongs in a different time. Yeah. And if he is compelled to make his movies match the the style of the original trilogy, then I can see where he w- might go to some great lengths to – you know, train his cinematography to match, say what you would expect out of, you know, return of the Jedi. Um, maybe and that, but, that'd but, be but, a very good thing. But think about what we saw in the trailer though, Joe, where, you know, you've got those shaky cam shots and the strobing lights on the stormtroopers, and, and you've got, uh, you know, but on the other, on the other hand, you know, he analyzed some shots in the trailer that had, uh, some great visual contrast and some really nice colors like and that's that's where jj's strengths are honestly if you look at his scenes he kn- he knows how to how to put colors together and that was one thing i hadn't really put my finger on before because there are certain elements that i like about jj's style and and as i was as he's going through this analysis i let you know he's right jj does a really good job with the color palette he does a really good job with contrast and oftentimes his shots are well composed it's just that they're hard to follow because of the shaky cam oftentimes 
So that's, you know, that, that that's the sort of analysis this video is giving. Highly recommend it. I, I, I sat and watched it. Uh, it's, it's like uh, 15 minutes, I think. And I sat and watched it just before the show, and, and I could not stop. I was like, I sure hope this video ends before it's time to start the podcast. <laughs> uh. So um, highly recommended. Anything else you guys want to say about uh, JJ's cinematography and his visual style? Good no, luck, I just I want to say that I'm watching the video while we've been talking about it, and this is a really interesting video. It's got a little bit of Mad Max Fury Road in it, too. Oh, yeah. Can't no, he, he definitely compares. See, one of the things that he did uh, in this video is he compared and contrasted um, and, and he even talked, he, he showed some interview or we, we heard some interviews with the director, uh, George, uh, uh, is it George Miller? Is that right? For George Mad- Miller. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 For Mad Max Fury Road. And he talked about everything. Every bit of this movie was storyboarded and we went over and over the storyboards and we memorized it. We knew exactly what we want. And then he played a clip of JJ going, yeah, I tried not to storyboard anything in Star Trek because we really wanted it to have a sense of, uh, of energy and, 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 and on the, and thing, you know, and he's t- bringing all this, you know, this sounds high minded and everything, but it's like, oh, come on. If you, if you don't storyboard, you don't know where you're going. And and so that was that was frustrating to see, it, you, you know, and you can see exactly how that worked out for J.J. when he would show the shots that J.J. particularly said, this sequence, we didn't storyboard at all. We just started shooting and we, <laughs> we you know, and then we, you know, whatever. And you can see just the lack of cohesiveness. Um, uh, specifically, think about the Klingon planet, um, uh, Kronos, and and uh, when they, they go to, to find uh, uh, John Harrison, I'll try not to spoil that film too much, uh, John Harrison on, on Kronos and and that that entire Klingon fight sequence just feels so disjointed, and the reason is because you've got an interview with JJ going, yeah, we we didn't storyboard that at all. We just wanted it to have a sense of energy, and and we wanted to bring the camera and and just point it and shoot it. And and I think <sighs> that's a generational gap too between older filmmakers and younger filmmakers. George Miller obviously is seventy years old and comes from a more old fashioned way of doing things, and JJ Abrams is a member of a you know younger, newer group of directors sure. who are a lot more comfortable with the idea of shooting for the edit, which is a, a sort of filmmaking philosophy that really bothers me. Yes, um, me too. And rarely works out that well. And we're, and but, we're part of the younger uh, generation, honestly. But it, I, yeah. I completely agree with you. Yeah. And, and this is the thing. Like, look at – this is the reason the comparison was made in, in this video. Look at Mad Max Fury Road and then look at Star Trek and you tell me which one is, is better directed. You tell me which one has better action sequences. And it, it hands down, Mad Max Fury Road trumps, you know, Star Trek any day of the week in terms of, of, terms of you know, the action and, and how it was shot and, and the yeah. storyboarding. And without, you know, getting much into uh, thoughts on the movie we'll be talking about today, I can just about guarantee you that Rogue Nation was fully storyboarded. Absolutely. There's, it just oh. makes, it's too cohesive. It makes too much sense to, to yeah, not right. have been storyboarded. Um, all right. So with that, I think it is time to start uh, moseying towards our uh, Mission Impossible <laughs> review. And the first bit of news here regarding Mission Impossible is that Paramount has already confirmed that Mission Impossible 6 is in development. And most of the time when it comes to uh, when it comes to franchise films being greenlit as, you know, opening weekend before they even really know what they have in their hands – I'm like, oh come on, guys! But I'm after having seen Rogue Nation. I'm actually really excited about this. Oh yeah. Um. So that that is the news. Tom Cruise. Um. Did uh, he was on um John Stewart's Daily the Daily Show, which is ending soon, which is sad. But he was on the Daily Show and he confirmed that uh, Mission Impossible Six is underway, and he's already pitched an idea for a um a sequel to Edge of Tomorrow, another film which I really liked. So. Tom Cruise is on a really great kick here, and I hope a really great streak, and I hope it continues. And this is exciting. 
You know, that would be cool if they made an Edge of Tomorrow sequel. I know that movie wasn't really much of a hit, but... I know, um, but it was so good. That was fun. Yes. Yeah. I wouldn't say... I'm maybe hmm, spoiling my, my ideas on Rogue Nation here. <laughs> I don't know that whether I would say it was better than Rogue Nation, but it was it no. was one of the better films, uh, you know, that... I don't know. It just... It was really, really good. I really enjoyed that film. And, you know, qualms about some of the ending bits aside... <laughs> It was so good. So yeah. I'm, I'm excited to hear that he's pitched an idea. And Tom Cruise, I feel like he can do what he wants. So that means it's probably going to happen. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So Mission, Mission Impossible 6 is on the way. Uh, the other thing that we were asked to talk about by one of our listeners, I love it when we get feedback and we were asked to talk about this. So we, we really uh, can't not talk about it. Uh, and I have not had time to really read through this, which is unfortunate. I meant to do it before the show, but I didn't. But but essentially, the idea he, here is that there are four types of Tom Cruise movies. Joe, have you had a chance to break this down and kind of figure out what's going on here? Uh, here's the thing. I'm, I'm not crazy about how this was broken down. Mm. I understand what they're trying to go for. It's just they're trying to make a relationship between many movies. And I don't think you can really make a relationship between these movies, given that they were – productions of different times. They were influenced by the trends of what was happening in filmmaking during these different times. Also different budgets, different directors and Tom Cruise trying out different things with his career. So yes, uh, consolidating them into a, a flow chart like this and saying that there is a relationship between all these things, I think is a little bit uh, presumptuous. You're, you're starting through the lenses rather than just accepting the reality that, you know, none of these movies really have a relationship with each other. I mean, let's just take the Mission Impossible films, for example. If you look at uh, part one and two, they really don't have all that much to do with each other. You could have – it is entirely possible that they may in, – in, in a one scenario, you may not even need to have the original Mission Impossible movie – to jump right to the second one if that's where you wanted to start with the franchise. Mm -hmm. uh, and the same goes for the last three. <laughs> so uh, I just don't know that you can really make a, a relationship between things like Rain Man, Top Gun, you know, Rock yeah. of Ages. Yeah, yeah. It, just, it, it gets to be too, too, too nuanced. Well, I would say that Tom Cruise, he, he's, he's never felt like he's been pigeonholed in anything specifically. I, I mean, I, I guess it's always action. It's almost always action. But it, it feels it, it feels like he doesn't mind trying out different things and doing you know various different things. I, yes. I don't know. I could That's be wrong, very good. but he he just he he tends to say, "Well, I want to try this. I want to try that." And and you can clearly see that too in in the way that uh, you know JJ was an up and coming director, and he says, "Well, let's do Mission Impossible 3. And and then you know you've got. Uh, a Brad Bird, his first live-action film is Mission Impossible Four, and and Christopher McQuarrie, he, you know, he collaborated with him with Jack Reacher, and then he brought him in for Mission Impossible uh, Five. Is this the fifth one? Yeah, the fifth one, Five. So, um, yeah, it feels like Tom Cruise. You know, what do you mean types of movies? Every movie that he makes is different from the last. Uh, I don't know. Do you, I'm sure you have an opinion on this, Clark. Um, my opinion is that my favorite movie that Tom Cruise is in. Uh, which is Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia, mm. is not listed in any one of these four categories. <laughs> so I contend that this is a useless list. Okay. Well, very good. We'll, we'll move on then. And I know that... that uh, but but uh, to give a more serious response, though, it, it, <laughs> it is... These categories are really vague. Uh, it, it's a combination of popularity and subjective opinion of the person putting the list together and 
money and it, it's it's very um yeah there there is not a whole lot that ties these groups of movies together so uh, you know I I don't know that I necessarily agree with the basic thesis at work here. <laughs> well, there you go. So we've we were asked to discuss it and we've discussed it and my apologies to, to whoever suggested it. But <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um that is the end of our film news segment. Let's move on into our review of Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. I want you to choose your next words very carefully. Where is Hunt? We've never met before, right? Before I'm ready. Ethan, where are you? The syndicate is real. A rogue nation trained to do what we do. An anti-IMF. That was from the trailer for Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, which is in theaters now. It was released on July 31st, 2015. It had a budget of $150 million, and the opening weekend, domestically, it brought in $55.5 million. And the worldwide gross thus far has been $127.3 million. This is just its first weekend, so we can assume that this film is going to make money. The critic consensus is that Mission Impossible Rogue Nation continues the franchise's thrilling resurgence and proves that Tom Cruise remains an action star without equal. The director was Christopher McQuarrie, not a newcomer necessarily, and he's written a lot of things, but uh, he hasn't directed a lot of things. He has directed one other Tom Cruise movie, uh, Jack Reacher, which was not particularly well received. Um, and so uh, collaborating again with Tom Cruise, I think, has given him a chance to to prove a little something here, which we'll talk about. <laughs> the writers were Christopher McQuarrie and Drew Pierce. The stars were Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt, Jeremy Renner returning as William Brandt, Simon Pegg, again, wonderful, wonderful decision to cast him in uh, Mission Impossible 3. He returned as Benji Dunn, Rebecca Ferguson as Ilsa Faust. I believe I've said the last name correctly. And then Ving Rhames as Luther Stickle and Sean Harris as the bad guy Solomon Lane. The composer was Joe Kramer. I have been anxious to talk about the music of this film with you, Clark. Why don't you uh, give me some thoughts on the music of this film? I thought the music was fantastic. Um, Joe Kramer is a guy who hasn't really gotten a lot of high-profile assignments. In fact, he's sort of um, been dependent on Christopher McQuarrie for most of his mm. You know, good work. Uh, the biggest film he's done before this was, in fact, Jack Reacher. Right. Um, and he's always been a talented composer, but has just never really made it big. And this movie, I hope, is the film that does it because this is a very, very intelligent score. Um, it, I think, leans a little bit heavier on some of Lelo Schifrin's material than some of the others, uh, not only on the main Mission Impossible theme, but also on the sort of secondary theme called the plot that pops up in all of these scores. Mm -hmm, Right. And um, his variations on those ideas, though, are are very, very smart and very intelligent. Sometimes they're very subtle. Yes. And I love the way he works uh, that little melodic idea from the opera that's featured in the Mm -hmm. film into his score as well. That's really lovely and some great original material. Uh, It's a fantastic effort, and I would say absolutely up to the standard of the best scores written for this series. Yeah, I was I was worried about the score when I didn't recognize the name Joe Kramer, and I'm sure you did because you're much more into scores than I am. I I'm a casual observer of film scores, but I um I really like the work that Michael Giacchino did on both of the previous films, and uh, I thought that Michael Giacchino really upped the game for the scores on the last two films. Uh, just fantastic work. 
And I was concerned because he wasn't coming back, and I didn't know what to make of that. And it turns out I needn't have been worried, as you're describing. His his work here is fantastic. And and I definitely thought that he brought some subtlety. He had a way of surprising me with where he was going with the score. And I, I, I usually say that if you notice a score, it's a bad thing. But the way that it was woven into the story, and yet it, it somehow had a way of surprising me of the direction that it took – I always thought worked out really well. So I was really impressed with his work here. And I got to say, he grabbed me from the very first scene when it was, I think like a minute of one logo after another, after another, after another, (laughs) as the movie was opening and his little, uh, string motif with those horns over the top of it, just kept building and building and building and building. Yes. Uh, That was a really nice touch. And I was like, okay, we're in good hands with this guy. Yeah, absolutely. It really feels like at this point, um, you know, I've, I've enjoyed all the scores of all the Mission Impossible films, except, and this is strange because I like Hans Zimmer, for Hans Zimmer's score on the second film. It was just yeah. terrible. And it, what, his, what was that operatic, uh, I don't or not operatic, but that, that choral thing that he was doing in that film? I just, oh mm-hmm. my goodness. Yeah. It, Mission Impossible 2, both the movie and the score, um, <laughs> feel almost amusingly like they're trying to be like the hip, cool, edgy version of a Mission Impossible movie. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, and it it's aged very poorly. Um, but I do like certain moments in that score, particularly the kind of uh, romantic guitar material he has in there. Some of that's nice. Yeah, but and I think by themselves it, they work better too than in the film. Yeah, but it is it is easily the weakest score of the bunch. Um, I actually really like Elfman's score for the first one. Yeah, um, I it's do too. probably the least melodic score of the bunch, but it's a very, very engaging action score. Yeah, and one thing that all the films, except for the second one, feature is, is uh, that kind of, it's almost subtle, like you almost don't even notice it, but it's almost like that, uh, drum is not the right word, but that kind of rattling thing that happens uh, that, that, you know, like there's they're about to unravel or uncover some something, and, right. you know, it's just, it's, uh, and that that actually has been maintained pretty well throughout the series, and, and Joe Kramer also included that in, at various times. Uh, if I so. can um, share a short anecdote related to this, yes. um, a few years ago, shortly after Mission Impossible Three came out, I had the opportunity to interview Lalo Schifrin, who wrote the you know original themes for the TV show. Oh, nice! And I was asking him about uh, you know which of the scores written for the movies uh, was his favorite. And he immediately said, oh, the third one. And then he paused as if he wasn't supposed to say that and said, well, I like all of them equally. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, I, I, I do think, as much as I love Brian De Palma's Mission Impossible, and, and the score for that by Elfman is fine, I do think Giacchino really upped the game for the third one. So I would agree with him, that, that, yeah. that, that especially at that time when you interviewed him, probably, the fourth one probably wasn't out yet. So No, it wasn't. And, so. and you know, I, I will admit, I, I was glad to see that a different composer was on this one, just because uh, I love Giacchino as much as anybody. But I also got the sense, the fourth score, as good as it was, uh, Giacchino used most of his best ideas on the third one, and then, you know, a lot of the great he moments re- in the fourth one yeah. were kind of repeating he that. He reprised them, and that can happen. That's called, I call that composer f- fatigue. <laughs> uh, you, you know, where it's just like when when they brought uh, James Horner in to score uh, Star Trek Three. Everything relates back to right. Star Trek. You know this. Uh, <laughs> they brought James Horner back in to score Star Trek Three, and I feel like as much as I loved his score on Star Trek Two, that it was tired and worn out for Star Trek Three. Yeah, and I mean, it's still on its own terms. If you heard that without hearing the other one, it would be a perfectly fine score. But yes, um, yes. yeah, it, it's just too much of the same thing. So yeah, composer fatigue is a real thing, and 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 keeping it, you know, switching it up and getting Joe Kramer in here, not a bad thing at all. So we spent a a lot of time on the score. <laughs> Joe, it is finally your turn. Unless you have something you want to say about the score. 
Uh, you know, usually I notice the score when I'm in an action film. This time around, I guess because it was so familiar to me with the the the, the touches of the various themes that um, it just didn't really stick out. Okay. It didn't really stand out. I mean, that's fair. It didn't. It didn't hinder the film. Oh, I liked the film, so Good. I didn't find any detraction from the soundtrack. Okay. Well, why don't you tell us about the storyline of this film, and then we can actually start discussing plot points. Yeah. So, uh, in a nutshell, Ethan and the team take on their most impossible mission yet. Of course, it have to be the most impossible. Of course, it has to get better and better. Eradicating the syndicate. You know, not to be confused with Spectre, and international rogue organization. It, it has a. Uh, it is very highly skilled and they're committed to destroying the IMF. So if Ethan doesn't take them down single-handedly, who will? There you go. So that yeah. is, that is kind of what's going on here in this film. I do have to admit up front that I didn't understand this whole, why are we calling it the syndicate? It seems like one guy, <laughs> but whatever. <laughs> um, uh, let's, uh, let, let's start with our general thoughts overall of how these films have fared and kind of, you know, one of the things that I'll say is I, I enjoy the rate at which these films have been coming out. Uh, you know, they're, they're, yes, we have a franchise. We have five films in this franchise now, but they haven't been just pounding them out and trying to get milk as much money from this cash cow as they can. They've been coming out at a reasonable rate. It's been 19 years. Can you believe that? It's been 19 years since the first Mission Impossible film came out starring Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt. And so these films have been spread out over a period of 19 years, and it feels really reasonable. Uh, what, how do you guys feel about that? Uh, it's, uh, it's been very comfortable because it's not every day that they, they uh, allow it to mature, you know, sort of like in between seasons of the trends of action films. Uh, like, for instance, with all these Transformer films for a, <laughs> a, a, an absolutely disgusting contrast. What are we, Transformers it, 20 now? I don't know. Yeah, for all, all things considered, it feels like in the grand scheme of things, if you did or did not like any given one of these movies, you'll probably have the exact same feelings about all the other uh, Transformer films because they ha- all have the air marks of Michael Bay films. They're very much in keeping with his vision. So if you have to, you have to lump them all together no matter when they were made. Sure. What's kind of nice about Mission Impossible is that if you didn't care for Mission Impossible 2, there's a good chance you'll still like one of the other movies because they're all different. And that that is the case for me. I really don't like Mission Impossible 2 much at all. <laughs> so, Clark, uh, on record, have you ever met anyone who liked Mission Impossible 2? Um, uh, okay, I, I, I've <laughs> met the evil half of my brain likes Mission Impossible 2. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> it, it's It's... <laughs> It's a bad movie, objectively, but there is a part of me that enjoys it uh, as a piece of ridiculously campy entertainment, especially once it kicks into that third act. You've got that preposterous motorcycle fight preposterous with the flying doves is a good word for the third act. It's, it's, it's so silly and so ridiculous, but it's also, uh, <laughs> I don't know, just kind of charmingly bombastic in its weird way. Uh, the, the, I think the only, like... First of all, we talked about this last week, so we won't bore our audience too much with this. But like, mm-hmm. when it, it took like fifty minutes to an hour before the film even got started. Like, yeah, and then it gets there, and it's like finally we get to the racetrack, and you're like, oh, this is really there's some cool stuff going on here. And then it was like that was it. That was the only high, that was the high point of the film for me, and it wasn't that high. Uh, yeah. Anyway, 
Yeah, I do. I do like though that every every one of these movies feels different and has a different sensibility. I like that they've brought in a different director for every installment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a very cool way to approach a franchise, and it's also um, allowed us to kind of see the evolution of Tom Cruise over the past twenty years. Yes. he's a slightly different guy every time. He shows up, and initially, one of my complaints was, uh, especially after seeing Mission Impossible Two, I was like, Ethan Hunt doesn't make any sense as a character. Well, I think uh, that was the, no the least way. like Ethan Hunt he had ever been. Yeah, even yeah, he doesn't even feel now. like the same guy at all. But but really, what I've realized over time is that Ethan Hunt is you might as well just call him Tom Cruise sure. because he's whoever yeah. Tom Cruise wants to be at that moment in time. He's the Tom Cruise action hero. Well, and because and, the films are spread out over 19 years, like it actually feels kind of realistic that Ethan Hunt, you know, we, we don't stay the same people over time. Like I'm a different person now than I was, you know, <laughs> 10 years ago or even five years ago. Like sure. my personality, you can see differences from then and now. So it makes sense to some extent. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Um, and, and, you know, it's it's a good series. I, and I like, too, that um, the series has never seemed like it's in any really big hurry to turn into a gigantic thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's never selling the next movie. It's giving you everything it's got in the movie it's making at the time. Yes. Uh, that's an incredibly refreshing approach, especially in this age of, you know, blockbusters that feel like trailers for the next blockbuster. Um, you never get the sense that a Mission Impossible movie is holding anything back or saving anything. It's it's giving right. you its very best. Yeah, I completely and agree. That, and that's part of what Tom Cruise does too. Like every time out, even if it's a bad movie, you feel like Tom Cruise is giving you you know one hundred and fifteen percent. And there's a certain earnestness that comes with Tom Cruise. I think that's what you know. That's what sells me on his films typically. Yeah, he, he's he's always. You can see his effort uh, every time. It's yeah, I mean, the, the guy is literally, I, I assumed that they were, you know, doing digital effects and whatever, uh, but I thought, man, this the scene with the plane looks so good. How, I mean, how did they pull this off? It looks so good. And then yeah. I was, you know, it's real. He's hanging on the side of a plane, you know, in the air. So they got him <laughs> strapped in and they're using digital effects to remove how they're holding him on. But, but like, he literally is flying. Th- and I thought, well, that's why it looks so good is because it's real. Yeah. So and, and I mean, same Cruise. deal in uh, in Ghost Protocol with him clinging to the side of yes. the building. It's yes. Just amazing. He's crazy. He's nuts. Yeah. And that's what makes this film so good is he's giving it his all. <laughs> like he insisted, like they would have been glad to get stunt doubles and transpose his face with the digital effects and whatever. But he's like, <laughs> he does his own stuff. Like he is in 110 percent invested in this thing. And he, he, by all accounts, he loves doing it. So uh, I will say we've been talking about the sort of relaxed pace these movies have been coming out at. It looks like the next one is going to be sped up a little bit. Right. Um, we alluded to that like earlier. going to shoot it next year. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I'm, I, I'm actually pretty excited about it. Go ahead, Clark. Oh, I was going to say, I think part of that is that um, Tom Cruise is 53 years old now. Yes. And though I imagine he'll be running and jumping and doing all the things Tom Cruise does for a long while, maybe there's a little more pressure to you know, get these in while he still has that youthfulness going for him. But do you think we're going to see Tom Cruise running and jumping around on airplanes when he's 65? Well, Liam Neeson is doing it, right? I do. Honestly, I do. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Unless he has some kind of uh, health problem that comes up. I I think he will do this until something happens that reveals to him that he absolutely cannot do this anymore. He just seems like the kind of guy. I messaged Joe when I got out of the theater. Joe, you remember this. I said, uh, Tom Cruise, you can tell he's getting older, but then I thought about it and I'm like, you know, but you can't tell he's 53. What is happening here? <laughs> he's just like, yeah. he doesn't look like he's 53. I mean, let's be honest. He's got to be dying his hair. 
<laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's that moment in the early in the movie when he is about to be interrogated and tortured, and then uh, the tables turn, and so he, he's he's got his handcuffs on, he's strapped to a pole behind his back, and just really quick, he's thinking on his feet. He looks around the room. There's nothing else he can do. He tried to use the key. He can't get it to reach into the lock on his handcuffs. So he just like whisks his body up into the air and he shimmies himself up <laughs> off of the pole and down to the floor again <laughs> on his own two feet like a cat. I yes. mean, like, what the heck was that? But at the same time, Joe, I, one of the comments that I have uh, for this film that I really liked is, and I, and I actually wish it would have gone further, but I liked what they did where, yes, it's still Tom Cruise. Yes, he's still this, you know, buff action, whatever, and he can do a lot of cool things. But they definitely played a little bit him a little bit older. Like he he fumbled a few things, and that was okay. Like he, you know, he's been doing this for twenty years, and uh, I thought I thought that the film actually nodded to it a little in a way that that worked really well. Did you guys notice that at all? Uh, yeah, I there did. Was and, it, way. and they didn't do it in the sort of you know obnoxious way that uh, a lot of these movies do when they've got older action stars and they have to make a joke about it every ten minutes. You know, yeah. or some younger Ooh. character says, "Keep up, old man." Yeah, or exactly. Like <laughs> but. Um, but yeah, they, they they are letting him age a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that being said, they are letting him uh, consider retirement. And uh, at least in this last film, they suggested, "Hey, you know, you've been doing this for a long time. Uh, you've paid your dues. What about retirement?" And he actually stops to think about it. Like he doesn't have an attitude of a, a young man. Like, no, I'm I'm on a mission, and after this one, the next one, and I can never see that changing. His attitude was like, you know. It's kind of sounding appealing now. <laughs> yeah. He had yeah. that look in his eye. Yeah, I thought this film did a really good job. And not not the, you know, I enjoyed the age stuff that came with the Star Trek movies, uh, starting with Star Trek II, and I enjoyed the nods to that. But sometimes it felt almost heavy-handed, and this just feels like a light nod to it. And I, I appreciated that about this film. Um, so yeah, let, let's uh, let's let's dive yeah. in here and kind of well, see yeah. what we liked about this film. Uh, about an hour ago, TJ, you asked what we thought of the overall film. Um just normally go back to that. <laughs> I love this movie and it just has everything I want in an action movie, a spy action movie in spades. It's delightfully entertaining. It's also very intelligent for an action film. Like we don't always get that in these kinds of movies. I feel like oftentimes the screenplay somewhat insults the, ob- uh, the audience with cliches and the, you know, very familiar territory and bad acting and haphazard, you know, well moments of like the director, uh, basically trying to boost his own ego um, sure, yeah. th- through his film work. And I didn't get any of that. I feel like, you know, something that Tom Cruise has said in interviews is how much he is thinking about what the audience wants. And then he tries to give it to them. Yeah. And this is one of those films where I felt like they allowed themselves to be 100% creative all of the time and consider what they would really like as filmmakers up on screen. But at the same time, they seemed very aware of the audience, which is more of a, um, it's one of the reasons I love Pixar films because I feel like Pixar does that. They exercise that kind of uh, filmmaking technique that they're always reviewing their movies along the way from the standpoint of the audience's concerns. And it's uh it's not a bad thing. And like you were saying earlier, Clark, where would this movie be without the, the 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 signs that this film probably had a lot of storyboarding, and I I don't know. Like I have to agree. It just you, you're not thinking about it while you watch the film, but then when you stop to think about it, it makes a lot of sense. It's refreshingly systematic and uh, cohesive. 
the action sequences in this film are, are so elegantly choreographed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, if Mad Max hadn't come out this summer, this would hands down be the best action movie of the year. But yes. um, it, it is just an incredibly well choreographed action movie. Um, and, and like you were saying earlier, TJ, every every beat that's there makes sense. You you have an idea of where everyone is and what they're doing and why they're trying to do it. Yep. And uh, none of the action films feel the same either. Um, you've got really like four or five different kinds of action scenes, all of which are fantastic um, and all of which have their own very unique set of qualities. It's great. Yeah. Um, I wanted to address two of the points, both, both of you have mentioned at various times. So the first one I'll mention is Clark, you, you said Mad Max and it's unfortunate. This has been a great summer for films. Honestly, it's unfortunate that, um, that it had to come out the same year that Mad Max did, because I feel like I, I'll have to give Mad Max the higher score, uh, just for some of the great things that it did and the action beats and, and the way it, that was choreographed. But this film, you know, Joe, you use the term cohesive, and that is absolutely ex- what I feel about this movie. Like, it is, I have a special place in my heart for the first Mission Impossible film. I, I love Mission Impossible 4, and, and Mission Impossible 3, I love it because it, it brought the franchise back up out of the miry depths of Mission Impossible 2, and it really started this franchise down a good track, but man, this film is so cohesive, and it is so good, and it it really also gives a lot of nods to what came before. It's something we've not had in Mission Impossible before. It's almost as if the previous film maybe never didn't have to have happened. And this film, they, you know, you've got Alec Baldwin reciting some of the things that went, they did and that almost went wrong, and they got by with it with sheer luck. And, <laughs> and they, 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 they reference things that happened before and in a good way. And so this, so it was cohesive with the with the franchise in that way. But it was cohesive as a film, like you. You never felt like, oh, this is the part where they do this because they have to because it's an action film. Like every beat logically came uh, because of what what preceded it, and this this uh, film just feels so cohesive that way. Yeah, and one of the cool things about that is that uh, the action actually starts to simmer down in the second half of the movie. I know yes. this is something a few people complained about, but logically, at a certain point, the story kind of needs to take precedence over you know big action sequences in the film rather than trying to force <laughs> some great big gigantic chase scene or something like that uh, into the mix. Let's everything unfold very organically. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it, it was fantastic. I, you know, one of the things I, I have heard that complaint about this film that, that just starts to simmer down, but I loved the, actually loved the pacing. It came to a, a crescendo at the action and then the end is a little bit subdued, but it actually was very fulfilling and satisfying. Uh, I actually like the, the more intimate fight scenes with the knife and, and, and those sorts of things. And they didn't feel big and bombastic. It, you know, a lot of times the director feels like, or the writers or whatever, they feel like they have to one up whatever came before in the film until you're building to this big thing. And like, I actually love that, that Christopher McCory was like, no, you know what? This scene needs this. And this is the logical place of where we're going. We've eliminated, you know, all of the henchmen. And now it's just our good guy versus our bad guy. A couple, couple of good guys versus our bad guy. And it's not going to be a big bombastic scene. And this, it actually felt really fulfilling. It it did. And it felt like something a little bit closer to the first Mission Impossible movie, like Mm -hmm. an actual spy movie Mm -hmm. as opposed to an action movie. And yeah, it was a lot of fun. While we're thinking about it, uh, characters. (laughs) Uh, I wanted to say that I think we have the best Mission Impossible leading lady to date. No doubt. No doubt. Jessica Jessica Ferguson, I believe I have her name right. 
Uh, Rebecca Ferguson. Uh, Rebecca Ferguson. Okay, I knew something didn't sound right about that. I don't think that you had to have Rebecca to play this part, but she certainly brings so much to the character and to the franchise that I'm really stunned. Like, she really shows up a lot of other actresses, and it's kind of <laughs> retrospectively, I'm, I'm rather disappointed by others' performances. Yeah, and you know what I love the most about her and, and Tom Cruise in this film is this was not in any way a romantic love interest. They were not playing up a, a, a romantic angle on this at all. It was, you know what, here's two agents in the field. They have differing interests. She's not really, you know, she's she's somewhat the villain at first, but she she's not really the villain. She's just doing what's best for her country, just like... You know, the IMF is doing what's best for the United States. And yeah, she's, yes, she's the Catwoman like of this film. She's the what? Catwoman. Yes. I, I feel like I Catwoman's know. more of a villain than, than, than Ilsa was. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I think it worked really well. Uh, well, and you know, there there are moments, I, I did find it kind of amusing the way that uh, pretty much every time she turns up for the first time in a while, Tom Cruise like just stops in his tracks for a few seconds and gets distracted. Um, but it, <laughs> It, there's a part of it that's like, oh, wow, she's really beautiful. But I think there's another part of it that's like, she's really good at what she does, too. Yes, yes. And the, you got the sense that it's really more of a mutual professional admiration thing than something romantic. Yeah, I never got like, – like maybe they would, would just hint at a romantic thing for laughs, but it never it never really was a thing. And that's I, – I appreciated that because – all the all the leading ladies in the previous Mission Impossible films had some sort of romantic involvement or interest. I, I guess that's not necessarily true with Paula Patton, but uh, I don't know. It didn't well, she, you know, because she had that whole the romantic thing was driving her because she, you know, she lost the the person that she cared about or whatever. I, I just felt like this was more refreshing in that way. And again, I, I I wish that Paula Patton could have been in this film. I missed her. That's actually one of my complaints about this franchise is we never. None of the, none of the uh, none of the women have have remained in the series. They they they're they're once in the film and they're gone. You yeah, know? Michelle Monaghan made that brief cameo that, in the fourth yeah, I don't one count. is the only exception. But don't it count really. that. I don't count yeah. that at all. Yeah, the reason I wouldn't count that is because the first time I watched the film, it didn't even occur to me who she was. Mm. And I was wondering <laughs> what's going on. Like they didn't explain her appearance at the end of the film. It felt tacked on. You know how they say, you know, oh, you can tell that scene was just added on in post when they realized they needed to go back and explain something or they needed to add one extra action scene because that's what people want in this cameo appearance, blah, blah, blah. You know, word had it that that happened for something in, um, oh yeah, when the Falcon appeared in Ant man mm. that that scene was added on uh, late in the production and i didn't yeah. feel that way watching the movie but that was something that struck all the reviewers and uh yeah that's the way i felt about the appearance of ethan's uh wife in at the end of the ghost protocol yeah and i i found myself wishing that that they would have been more consistent with that over the last three films and also in this film wishing that paula Patton had been played a part in some way but then i suppose the cast would have been getting too large and i don't well, wouldn't want to dismiss rebecca ferguson because she did a fantastic job but I, I think perhaps it was the in the best interest of this movie like we were saying before this film feels so so cohesive that i think if they just wanted to add one more character and give that person justice it would not have been justice it would have felt like they were showing a lot more attention to the one character versus another and then we would have been disappointed that the one character wasn't developed more or you know it had created some other kind of complexity notice that with all these uh mission impossible films 
though there are like teams of spies working together, there's no extraneous spy that has nothing to do. There's, they all have a job that's you know absolutely important and nobody is expendable. So I think that that's probably something they keep in mind is how many people do we need to perform this particular spy job? If we don't have a job for someone, we don't need that character. Yeah. The teams vary in size from movie to movie and that's nice. Um, and yeah, uh, like you say, everybody was very well utilized and had a, a specific purpose in this, even if it was like in that one case with Luther, hey, uh, stand here and watch her, even though she's clearly much faster than you. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, obviously this is Mission Impossible, so it's all about the big action set pieces, even though there was good plot here. So we have to talk about the, the action set pieces. Um, and I thought that every single one of them in this film worked really well. Uh, I want to start with the, the opening. Now what do you mean by set pieces? Do you mean the locations? No, no, action set pieces. Are you not familiar with this uh, cinematic term, Joe? Okay, just clarify. Um, so the, an action set piece. Clark, you tell them what an action set piece is. Uh, basically, it, it's something bigger than an individual scene, um, but basically it's the series of scenes that compile an action sequence. So you could call it an action sequence. Oh, okay, to a gotcha. Set piece, I suppose. Yeah, oh, right. But yeah, yeah, but that's basically what it is. But it's it's... A, a self-contained sort of stretch of the movie that uh, you could say, okay, well, that's the... Um, yeah, we, you know. You're kind of thinking of like the, the power plant scene right. uh, sequence. Yeah. Right. So, or so you've got, the, you know, yeah. the heist sequence. Exactly. Or the heist set piece in the first Mission Impossible film. So, yeah. So, but, so, uh, so this, and this one, this one kind of opens with the, the big action set piece or the action sequence, Joe, of the, of the plane <laughs> heist, uh, basically. Uh, which, which you know, you're led to believe in the trailer. And I, I would argue, by the way, that this film had great, wonderful marketing in that it didn't really give anything about the film away in the trailers. Um, and, and you thought that it did because it's showing you this huge action set piece that's going on with this, you know, Tom Cruise hanging on the plane. And you assumed, at least I assumed in my head, well, this is somehow going to play into the main like plot of this film. And it's yeah, really, somewhere deep into act two. Yeah. yeah. Right. I'm like, this is going to come in around the same point. The, uh, tower climbing bit came in in the last movie. Exactly. And, and, and this was like, no, we are so confident that we have such good stuff in this film that we're just going to open with this big, huge action sequence and, and you're going to love it. And you're going to love the rest of the film too. And I just, it was so effective, uh, you know, in opening up this film in a way that already engaged me. And, and, you know, it's not, it's not fair to say that it doesn't really relate to the rest of the plot because it does. It has to do with the rest of the plot, even though it's a, it's, you know, it's also being served as a, Hey, remember these guys, they do really weird, impossible stuff. So I I really loved it. And, and I thought that, Oh boy, how are they going to, how are they going to make this film live up to the rest of this? And somehow Macquarie, made the rest of the film live up to that opening action sequence. It was fantastic. The one that really stands out for me, and there are several excellent action sequences, but the opera sequence mm-hmm. uh, is yes. the one that sort of stands out as the highlight for me. It, it's a fantastic combination of uh, of music and images and stunt work and, and just a great, great piece of filmmaking. Yes. And the way they, they tie the action beats together with the various sections of the opera um, I thought when it first started that it might be a brief bit and okay, we're going to do this cute bit where the opera music plays and they're fighting, but it's a really extended full blown sequence here and, uh, played beautifully the whole time. Um, very well choreographed. Uh, like I said, the, the music was wonderfully implemented. It reminded me of, uh, of a great old Alfred Hitchcock set piece. Yeah. Something like, especially the one it reminded me of most. I don't know if you guys have seen, um, 
his The Man Who Knew Too Much with Jimmy Stewart. Yes, it did. Um, yeah. But the but the, but the big uh, sequence with the orchestra uh, towards the end of that film, it kind of reminded me of that. But yeah, just a fantastic piece of filmmaking. And yeah, I, I definitely wrote down that the Opera House sequence was something quite special. Uh, and there was so much going on there. And it literally like had you on the edge of your seat. Like, is he going to be able to stop that, you know, the guy from getting shot? Like, is he going to be able to do that? And then, you know... I, it should have occurred to me, like, I, I'm smarter than this, I think, but I just, I, I don't know if it was the way the film was made, and just, you know, he kept me focused on other things, but it's like, well, of course, the only resolution is the one that, that he came up with, I won't spoil it for our listeners, but right. like, this is how you stop him from getting killed, <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, it worked, and it's like, oh, wow, I don't think I could have done that, <laughs> you know, just, uh, that that was that was a little rough, so... Um, yeah, very, very well choreographed and just, you know, like you're saying, Clark, everything with the way the music was timed together with it, it just worked really well. My favorite s- sequence, though, um, the, the, the underwater sequence was good. It, it, the only reason I don't classify it as the, my favorite is because um, it, it, it stretched in, 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 uh, a believability a little bit. Like he's <laughs> monitoring the <laughs> oxygen level like, what? What is this? And, and, you know, holding your breath for that long. Come on, really? But you know, so, I actually questioned the technology a lot more than holding the breath. <laughs> exactly, yes. So, you know, so He's wearing gloves, and on the top of the glove, it can give you a percentage yeah. point of how much oxygen you have left in your body. Like, my, my, my Apple Watch, which is like state-of-the-art technology, can't even track my calories correctly. So why should this be able to track his oxygen level? Yeah, well, so, in fairness, you're not one of the most important members of IMF. That's so. true, yeah. So, so, so that sequence was good, um, but it led into um, a, a a chase sequence that was good. And then it led into the motorcycle sequence, which was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I really loved it. Like the, if you, that is such a masterpiece. I can't wait to see it again. Like every cut, every angle, every, every shot just feels so well choreographed, Mr. Abrams. Uh, so it's just wonderful. It, I, it's rare that I really think that action sequence was so good. Like it, it really was, it was just something, it was one of the best I've seen this year. I would, I would, it would get close to what we saw in Mad Max Fury Road in a different way, obviously. It's a different film. But like the choreographing of that, that sequence was just so good. And Macquarie really kind of came out of nowhere with this one, too, because I, I saw Jack Reacher. I liked it. It's a pretty good little movie. It's got a couple good action sequences in it. But this is so just kind of far and away above that on a technical level. Um, yes. I, I guess he really must have felt the pressure to, to do this right and to match the level set by the previous film because Brad Bird's work on uh, Ghost Protocol was was so fantastic. Was, and I, yes. I really think he kind of raised the bar for action sequences for this series. Right, it and sort of movie, matches this the, movie matched it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it reminds me of the Desert Sandstorm chase. It, it's, that, it's that position. It has that placement in the film. And the timing is right that you know, when you have the motorcycle chase, it's like that. It, it, it is in a lot of ways. I would say that the choreography, uh, the choreography, if I can <laughs> get my English correct, um, hey, Bugs Bunny. my Englishes are good. Um, so the choreography is actually, I would say, better in, in the motorcycle chase scene specifically. That just I don't know. There was something about that sequence that I really loved every Every camera angle, none of it felt weird, you know, no weird cutty cuts and no, ju- like, this is how you do action, J.J. Abrams, <laughs> you know, this doesn't, you don't have to shake the camera around. I, I'm, I don't think there was much camera shaking at all going on here. But T.J., do we have intense. to make everything about J.J. now? Well, we talked about him earlier, so he's on my mind. Uh, and he did um, direct a Mission Impossible movie. He did, yes. So. 
and it was it, you know the uh, and it was okay it was fine well the villain made that one i mean the, it, no it, doubt yeah it's no still question. the best villain we've seen in mission impossible speaking right. of villains i felt like this one although he never annoyed me or really disappointed me he was nothing especially special either oh, what did y'all think? oh no i loved him i thought he I, was fantastic see yeah, i, I, was, I really was impressed by the scenarios that were introduced by him but then if i stop to think about it i'm like you know you're supposed to be this super spy agent yourself but you don't seem to be so hot except that you're an evil mastermind when you're you know standing over your computer and you know rubbing your hands and you know cackling evil and adjusting your glasses and you know <laughs> trying to do your best ichabod crane impersonation you're just not really capturing what you know philip seymour hoffman did or so you know, uh, other kind of evil villains can i would say he's the second best villain we've seen in mission impossible i, I thought that yeah. he was better fleshed out than any of the other villains and he wasn't just evil for the sake of being evil like phelps was no and he so wasn't thing, stupid though. like mission impossible 2 whatever his name was uh, you know owen davian obviously was a better villain because philip seymour hoffman just, you can't get better than that uh, and then I always thought that Mission Impossible 4, for all its great things, the villain villainy in that film was a little bit lame. Um, yeah, you're so, right. So, yeah, that was probably the weakest part of that movie. Yeah, that, that, was, that was lame. This was not lame. This was really well acted, uh, really well thought through. I never, I never bought that. Uh, he's the uh, the opposite of Ethan or whatever they were, you know, <laughs> garbage yeah. they were trying to sell us. But it still worked. It was really good. So I I think that it could have been better, but I think it is the, the, the second best that we've seen in this franchise. Okay, well, while we're still on the subject of the villains, did it bother any of you that it seemed all the henchmen who were supposed to be equals again with our spies at IMF and the CIA – couldn't seem to hit a target once. I mean, they were as bad as stormtroopers in this movie. There were several instances where they were roaming uh, the territory with their guns. Ethan or Ilsa winds up not having enough guns and not enough firepower, so they're just on the on foot and they're on the run. And it seemed like no matter how much lead they fired, they didn't hit anything. But this is Joe. This is a problem in general with action movies. Like people don't hit things unless the script calls for them to hit things. Yes, but it seemed like it was worse in this film than most. Like if you look at the the if you look at the terrain, the obstacles, the things in the way and their target and their distance from their target and the quality of their gun and the fact that they are experienced, you know, sharpshooters, why in the world did they not ever hit their targets? That that just kind of looked a little bit ridiculous in this movie, more so than most. Mm, I didn't notice a difference, Clark. Did you? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. wasn't really bothered by it, but though I did notice it in, in one scene, um, which is when Tom Cruise was escaping from captivity. And he was running down that hallway and there's really not a lot of wiggle room in that hallway. And he's got two or three guys shooting at him and he's not that far away. Right. And they're just whizzing over his shoulders. You yeah. Know? It's kind of like, yeah, but, but okay. To me, that was but, the, just the broader, Hey, in action movies, you can't, you don't get hit unless the script calls for it. <laughs> right. Basically. Yeah. It, it didn't, it didn't bug me. I wasn't, I, I wouldn't detract points off the movie for that. Yeah. No, I wouldn't either. Um, but yeah, I, I did like the main villain quite a bit and especially, uh, he was a pretty good villain on paper, um, but as performed, I thought he yes. was really exceptional. Sean Harris was, mm-hmm. was great in this part and, uh, he makes him a different sort of villain than we've seen in this series. Uh, he has a very unique kind of screen presence, almost James Bond villain, like at least recent All, incarnations of James. Yeah. Bond. Almost not quite as theatrical. Right. Is right. that, mm-hmm. but, uh, very much. Yeah. Kind of a, a cold British bureaucrat. Type yes. Of villain. Yes. And well, part um, of his gravitas comes from the fact that yes, he is British. Yeah. That does help. 
Yeah, and, 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 and I, interestingly, you know, the, the fact that he's British is interesting because um, a lot of people have been comparing uh, Mission Impossible films to, like, the American version of a James Bond film, or it's becoming that, which is an mm-hmm. interesting comparison to make, especially given the villain. My thought on that is that uh, this movie treats the British about as well as James Bond movies treat Americans, <laughs> and that occasionally there's a good one, but they're mostly either evil or incompetent. Yeah, <laughs> or, I did yes. have that thought. <laughs> I did have that thought. I was, I was Which not, is fine. Eh. You know, I think that's that's fair. Yeah, sure, uh, it, I suppose. For the series to trade conventions like that. But um, We're all white yeah. people, so it's okay, right? <laughs> <laughs> the, the, uh, the prime minister, oh, that's Tom Hollander. Yeah, we were talking about him earlier. Oh, I, I should have mentioned he's in this movie. Oh, yeah. you're right. I didn't even realize that. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, yeah. Didn't we say uh, he's Spider-Man? <laughs> close enough. Um, okay. No, that's Tom Holland who's Spider-Man, but I, Tom Hollander is who I thought was Spider-Man. Yeah. And it was so, not. so I really loved, by the way, that speaking of Tom Hollander as the, the prime minister, I loved that sequence where, and we knew, I knew the entire time that it was Tom Cruise or the Ethan Hunt under a mask. And I didn't care. I just loved it. Like yeah. everything that happened there was just so great. Also, uh, Alec Baldwin's speech in that scene is fantastic. <laughs> it was wonderful. Uh, <laughs> yes. It was agreed. amazing. He is the embodiment of, what did he say? He is the embodiment he is of destiny. destiny. Manifest destiny. Incarnate. Yes. I'm like, yes. This is and, and and can you imagine any other actor pulling that off other than Alec Baldwin? And it really, uh, I don't know if you guys were Thirty Rock fans, but it, it really did feel like uh, Jack Donaghy giving it a, did. Uh, I loved a Tom it. Cruise speech at that point. Well, it, it was such. I mean, to me, Alec Baldwin is so perfectly cast here. When I heard that he was cast in this role, I was like, oh, another casting of another, you know, higher high up. That's not the same one that we've seen before. Come on. But when I, I, I we got was, there, it was like yeah. Alec Baldwin did such a fantastic job. And, and it's the kind of thing where I don't always like Alec Baldwin because he's such a jerk, but it, it <laughs> works so well here. It was perfect. Right. I was yeah. actually kind of worried that he'd turn out as some sort of like CIA director of a Bourne film where yes. all of them just kind of grate on your nerves no matter how well they perform the part. And eventually, in repeating viewings, you're, you're kind of like, yeah, I could almost fast forward the scene of the CIA top executive guy because I'm just kind of tired of it now. But not not in the case of Baldwin's performance. Mm-hmm. I, I think he, his are some of the best parts of the film. Yes, yes. And, and I love his arc in the movie, too, which he starts out as kind of the typical government heavy where he's, you know – yeah, we're going to get Ethan Hunt, kill him if we need to. You know, I'm his nemesis that's supposed to be on his side. And then after a while, he's kind of like, yeah, Tom Cruise is pretty cool. I want to get in on this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it was funny. Like, I, I, it was completely unexpected. I expected him to be humiliated and put down. And, and by the end of the film, he's like out of the picture. But no, it turns out that Ethan Hunt is so good that he makes him an ally. Like yeah. that, it was it was fantastic, and and in the end, he's like, you know, uh, actually, we kind of need the IMF, and and I loved like, did you see his reaction? Like, it was so well acted when when he's like, wait, the syndicate, you 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 recognize what's being said here? There's a syndicate. Like his his reaction to that was just yes. so fantastic. Now, uh, since we are talking about characters that we you know we're just now getting to, uh, I, I find it surprising that we haven't bothered to mention Benji and Simon Pegg. Was that not the best casting decision J.J. Abrams has ever made <laughs> in his life? It was fantastic to add him to the series. I can't and imagine the series without him now. His part's gotten bigger and bigger with each film, too. Yes. There are l- large stretches of this movie where it basically feels like a buddy comedy uh, with Ethan Hunt and Benji. And those sequences work really well. Yes, they do. They play really um, well together. Yeah, yeah, he, he's he's a fantastic addition. Um, I will say that 
Brant is probably the member of the team that does the least for me yeah. at this point. It was yeah. disappointing um, after his last outing where he actually had good things to do, and this film, it feels like all he's doing is whining all the time. Well, yeah, he's there to be the grouchy one to be like, I don't know if we can do this. Maybe this yes. is an impossible mission. Yes, but, yes. You know, but you uh, which it, it's more his part the... than his performance, but... No, yeah, I mean, see, his performance he has the desk is always job. fine, but I'm sorry, Joe, I keep talking. Well, he's you. the analyst. He, he has the desk job. It's his job to tell the other people, that sounds impossible because I can't figure that out on paper. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I hope they – it feels like they've integrated him in at this point where he'll be back and he's like a staple. So I hope that they come up with better things for him to do in the future. And, well, and I do and, like yeah. Jeremy Renner, so that I, w- mm-hmm. I hope they do. I like if that you, they've kept Ving Rhames around too. He's the yes. only other person other than Tom Cruise who's been in all of these movies. And, and I always enjoy his presence on screen. Like he's always got something good to say, or it's always funny. Or I, I really love the part in Mission Impossible Three where he's like telling you know you you know we can't we we can't have these attachments. <laughs> he's, like, he's like Luther, we got married last week. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> so he's always great. It's just always wonderful. It, my my favorite moment with him in this film was when he was uh, talking to uh, Jeremy Renner's character and uh, he gave him that little kind of cautionary head cock where he's kind of like, if I find out that you're not playing straight yes, with me. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That was a great little And Renner's like, understood. <laughs> That actually raises one of the other things. It wasn't a disappointment, but was one of the weaknesses in the film. Whenever they had a scene between Luther Brandt and other sidekicks, it felt like they were, there was sort of a power play for who is directing the scene. And it happened two or three times where they would draw no conclusions. The one person's position and you know expertise would cancel out the other person's position and expertise so it was they were just batting around the ideas like you know we're you know prepping for the next impossible mission so everybody chime in with your thoughts go well i think it's impossible no i think it's very possible if we do this well we can't do this because that's impossible and they just go in circles and they did this two or three times throughout the film and, and in that? every case it ends with tom cruise going you know what i'm the star here we're gonna do what i want to do yes so yes <laughs> yeah he that. had a look about him that said uh, it was like uh I'm going to shrug and we're going to do this anyway. <laughs> but, but, but that said, I really enjoyed the scene where they would show you things that they were talking about with, you know, what, what Dunn, Benji Dunn would be saying, oh, well, that's simple. Three minutes. He can hold his breath for three minutes. That's yes, no big deal. That was, and then, that and then he's walking irony. through. He's like, I'll get to wear a mask. And he's walking through. And then all of a sudden, he's like, oh, but they, they det- you know, they detect your walk, you know, and whether it's good or and, and all of a sudden, he's showing him being shot down. He's like, so no mask. <laughs> I loved that. That was amazing. I liked his little bit, too, uh, right after the uh, power plant sequence when Tom Cruise, who is near death, yes. <laughs> is laying there on the ground, yes. and he's coming back. Well, difficult, but we did it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then and then that also, of course, led to more of the age acknowledgement, I guess, although it was mostly about the fact that he had just been dead and brought back to life. And he's like, he, you know, he does this really cool slide thing across the car, and he goes, thump. <laughs> it's like, oops. Uh, yes. Ahead, you know Jeff. those masks? They're one of the trademark staples of the Mission Impossibles. For a while there, I didn't think they were going to get one into the plot. Yeah, it was. It was. I, I think that that sequence exists so that we can see one of the masks. <laughs> <laughs> While we're on the subject of uh, characters, I wanted to talk a little bit more about Ilsa Faust. Um, yes, since we sort of skimmed over her, but um, she 
to me, it's it's very interesting. Her, her name is a, a little bit on the obvious side, but they named her Ilsa. Yes. I think clearly in reference to Ingrid Bergman's character in Casablanca, yes. uh, especially because a chunk of the film is set in Casablanca. Um, and there's something about her th- that she doesn't look like Ingrid Bergman exactly, but she has a very similar kind of screen presence. There's a very kind of old Hollywood European sort of feel to her performance. Mm, yeah. And uh, there's an old fashioned quality that, sets her apart, I think, from the other actresses who have been in this series. Um, and even though, you know, she's running around and jumping and shooting people and, you know, snapping people's necks with her legs and doing the things <laughs> that people do in these movies. Right. Uh, she does have a very kind of 1940s movie star quality about her. Sure, that yeah. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. And um, the last name Faust, I think, is interesting, too. Uh, you know, Faust being sort of a famous literary character who... Uh, God and the devil were allegedly vying for his soul. And I thought that was an interesting, if again, kind of heavy handed touch with uh, different agencies sort of competing for her allegiance and affection. Yes, yes. Uh, but uh, still a nice kind of thematic touch with her character. And she played it all really, really well. And like you say, hands down, the, the best female character the series has had thus far. And the one I, I really hope she does come back for future installments. If we're going to start doing that, let's start with her. Yeah. They've definitely left it open-ended to where she may or may not. It it would not surprise me either way, honestly, the way they've left it. Yeah. So, yeah, I I hope she comes back. Uh, You know, I, I, I hope at some point we can see Paula Patton again, but you know, as much as I liked Paula Patton, she definitely one upped that performance. uh, Refresh my, refresh my memory. Cause it's been a couple of years since I've seen it. Is Lawrence Fishburne in the fourth movie? Third. I know he's in the third, but did he come back in the fourth? No. Who is not. the uh, sort of big authority figure? Is there one in the fourth? There movie? is, and he's Equivalent? he's killed. He's the secretary. Um, oh I'm, yeah, he's. Um, uh, uh, what's I know. His name? Oh, his name is on the tip of my tongue. Yes, uh, I'm looking it up. He's Hang a big on. name too. Tom Wilkinson. Is that it? Uh, I thought I would have recognized it. So that was the name that popped into my head, but well, maybe he's just not on the front page here. Hang on. Well, he had a bit part. It was sort of like a cameo. It was Tom Wilkinson. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, uncredited. It says. Yeah, so, that's weird that, that he's uncredited. He's, he's not. It's it's a minor role, but it's not a very minor. It's not a uncredited role, in my opinion. But I will yeah. say that's interesting, though, um, that these movies do like um, trade out a new sort of big movie star authority figure in each of these films. It looks like they're planning to bring Alec Baldwin back for the I, next. Oh, one. definitely. They positioned him to be a regular now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but it, it has been interesting with going from Anthony Hopkins to Lawrence Fishburne to Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, Lawrence Fishburne made more sense. He was more integrated into the plot. I always thought Anthony Hopkins was a strange choice for that role because he didn't have anything to do. Yeah, it's it's a it's a weird part. Um I'm wondering if that's the part that was originally intended for Ian McKellen. I don't know if you guys read that story about uh, Ian McKellen almost missed out on X-Men and Lord of the Rings because he was thinking about doing Mission Impossible 2. <laughs> that would have been terrible. That would have yeah, been terrible. Been the worst thing of all time. But he said what happened was they sent him his scenes and he said, well, where's the rest of the script? He said, I, I need to see the rest of the script because uh, – you know, I, I can't do the movie unless I know it's good. And they said, well, we're trying to keep this thing under wraps. We don't want spoilers getting out, da, da, da. So uh, we're not sending out the full script to anybody. We're just sending out individual scenes. Yeah. So he dodged a bullet and there. he said, no, I'm not going to do it then. And uh, wound up doing X-Men and Lord of the Rings during time that would have otherwise been occupied. Nice. Thank God. Yeah, That's he, pretty amazing. We, we all dodged a bullet there. The two kind of great parts of his 
21st century career. Okay, so I've uh, I've the only thing that I have left that on my likes list that I haven't talked about, and this is just a small thing. I just would almost just mention it in passing. I really love, and they they've really upped the ante in doing this. I really love the way that the films all now feel like they have this TV style opening sequence, you know, where you've got the credits. And yes. the thing. Yeah. I love that about this series. And, and that, that wasn't as much of a thing. It's becoming more of a thing. Like starting with mission impossible three, it's really become a thing. And I love that about this thing. And, and this, you know, it, it kind of reminds me of the, uh, new Battlestar Galactica show. Yes. Uh, and I, it's weird because it, that tendency annoyed me in that show when it would show little clips of what was oh, to come I, in the episode. I always love that. I, I didn't care for it, but in the movies, I, I, I like it a lot. It's a very cool, uh, cool little touch. Okay, but yeah, you're right. It is a very TV episode sort of thing. Yeah, and and it, well, it harkens back to its roots. That's what I love about it. It's, it's acknowledging yeah. it, and and I I actually enjoy good uh, TV show open opener kind of you know sequences. Um, so mm. so all that said, do you guys have anything else that you liked about this film you want to talk about, or shall we get into our dislikes? I think I we've pretty well covered it at this point. Uh, I'm sure there are other things I could mention, but yeah, we, we've covered all the big things, I think at so least too. as far as I'm concerned. I've mentioned in passing some of my dislikes, but they were mostly just petty squabbles. Uh, right. There's not many big complaints here. Yeah, I don't think we're going to be here long. It felt it felt more fine-tuned than Ghost Protocol even. I, yes. I really admired Brad Bird's handiwork in that film, and I felt like, yes, this is, this is what I love. Like, like that sequence near the beginning where you have, um, I forget the actor's name, but he gets killed. He has, you know, special <laughs> information. And then the other agent just shoots him like right in the heart at point blank range. Is and that Josh Holloway. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. I loved that scene. Like his whole little chase, right? You know, it was, it was cleverly done and it didn't feel like a throwaway because the guy practically doesn't get his name mentioned in the film. I felt like that was carefully crafted and that's showing a lot of dedication from the director understanding that every little moment matters in his movie. Yeah. And that didn't happen. Well, it doesn't happen very often in a variety of spy and action films. That's one of the reasons I, I tend to like a mission impossible movie because even when they're making stylistic choices, I'm not crazy about like JJ Abrams made or, you know, mission impossible Two. <laughs> I still feel like they put so much of their heart and soul into these movies and part five or rogue nation feels really like it, it is the, like a culmination of all their efforts to, to fine tune and craft the machine that is this franchise. They, you know, like it, it, it's not very often you feel like it just gets better and better with more of this franchise, but this time I feel like it did. So it's really hard to identify complaints. Yeah, I agree. I'm, and, and most of them, like you said, have actually been mentioned for me in passing. I just kind of wanted to touch on them because I do have a, a bullet point list here. I have to go through my list. So, um, But Clark, did you, did you have any that you would like to kind of discuss? The only moment in the whole movie that I rolled my eyes at and I was like, that's so stupid, uh, was Benji playing Halo 5 at his desk. <laughs> that is such a dumb bit of product placement. Not only because it's, it's such a shameless bit of product placement. And I know it's not the only place they do it. They have like the BMW shots and yeah, everything yeah. in the movie. That's fine. But who plays Xbox console games at their desk they don't work? Nobody does that. Especially, especially, okay, so Benji's desk is awkwardly positioned to begin with, and then to be playing a game because he's, like, out in an open space and everybody's Essentially walking around. Essentially in the like, CIA, no, no. yes. In the yeah, CIA, It, it no felt less. like a very forced moment it of, was, right. uh, by the way, Halo 5 is coming out soon, so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. 
So um, my big uh, come on moment, as as uh, Mikey uh, Fizzle would refer to it, uh, was um, the motorcycle wreck. As much as I loved everything leading up to that, and then when Cruz wrecks the motorcycle, I'm like, there's no way in real life he walks away from that. That doesn't, no. He's, he's going, you know, 120 miles an hour, and he rolls the thing. Really? Come on. Come on. That's dumb. So I, I loved everything leading up to it, and then that happened. I'm like, really? Did that, did that bother anybody else? It, it was it was not the the best uh, sort of concluding moment for that scene, but it didn't really bug me. I, I loved the idea and the way that Ilsa pulled it off. Like that would that would you know you're whipping around that corner, you're about to catch her, and all of a sudden she's standing right there. Like I thought yeah. that it worked as a plot device, I, but but then when you think about it, it just it completely falls apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was dumb. So then my other my other big thing that I haven't mentioned yet uh, is that um, I'm kind of tired of the MacGuffin or the plot, you know, the thing that, that, that it always has to be about something digital. Well, we have to we have to go get this digital bit in this digital computer digital thing over here. <laughs> we got to we got to digitally we got the digital red box and it's all it's all voice print activated locked thing. And, and it just it always just feels underwater yeah, special fingerprint let's, technology. Let's let the next thing be something real in the world next time. That's an like an old thought. set of documents. Sure, something. I, I, I don't know <laughs> if it's that, but it's like I, not everything in this entire world is always all about the digital something or other. Like, it, the I, terrorist I, put it in his silver tooth. <sighs> yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm just I, maybe I'm alone in this, but I'm just kind of tired of it. It just feels old and, and worn out. So that was interesting my idea. Thing. Uh, and then, uh, the only other things I've m- I mentioned in passing render, 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 render was uh, a little bit annoying and whiny. And then, uh, there have been no recurring female characters across the franchise. So those are my other things that I noted. So what do you guys got? Anything else? I had one little annoyance that I don't think really matters again, but it, the chief inspector of the British security, he was kind of a turnoff, kind of the buzzkill and most things that he had to do and say, like the actor does a brilliant performance, but he felt a little bit too like a tinker Taylor soldier spy and not enough you know, mission impossible to me. And that being said, I can understand why a lot of people would appreciate what he brings to the story as a I don't, I, Clark. What would you say? He's not hard boiled, but he's just um, he's wormy. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I don't know. Like, I just don't like how he mistreated Elsa. That that that, that just gets on. Well, my skin. I think that was the point. I know. I just didn't like him. Mm. I just want to uh, say, for the record, uh, he was too good of a bad guy. Okay, you for was, the I, British I, intelligence. I liked him though, and I liked especially the scene where uh, he plays Ethan Hunt playing him. Those scenes are always fun in these movies. <laughs> yes. Uh, again, no one will top uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman doing Tom Cruise doing Philip Seymour Hoffman. <laughs> but that was pretty good. Yes. Yeah. But, yeah, but that was a good scene. But yeah, no, I I, I thought that the I, I did especially like that scene where he, where the actor is playing Ethan Hunt playing him, <laughs> so that works well. Yeah, I agree. Well, if that's all we have uh, to discuss of the, our high and low points, uh, why don't we get into kind of our wrap up and our rating? So, Clark, as our guest, uh, why don't you kind of start us off there? Mission Impossible: Rogue Nation is. Uh Really, you know, pretty much everything I want in a, in a summer action movie. And I know I said something along similar lines about Mad Max, but really Mad Max is almost in an entirely different plane. Uh, that, mm-hmm. That's a, a different sort of sort of movie, and it's incredible in its own way. But just as a traditional kind of summer popcorn action movie, yep. uh, Rogue Nation is exactly what I'm hoping to get. Uh, it does everything that the series does well, exceptionally well this time around. 
Uh, it demonstrates that Tom Cruise is still very much a movie star. And also I'll mention, because I didn't say this earlier, an unselfish movie star. He's somebody who shares the screen very well with uh, his assorted co-stars. Yes, and, and, uh, and in interviews he's always very highly praising of them. Yeah, it's got a great ensemble. It's got some tremendous action sequences. The opera sequence is one of my favorite scenes I've seen this year. Uh, Christopher McQuarrie really stepping it up big time as a director. Um, at the very least, it's a tie for the best thing the series has done. Maybe the best, but I need to watch it again before I say that. And uh, absolutely recommended. I you know I can't think of a reason not to go five out of five on this one. Wow, very high praise, Joe. I'm giving it four and a half stars out of five just because I think the little petty things are going to annoy me time and again. But that being said, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So it's probably going to be the Mission Impossible movie I watch the most often down the road. Just when I want to introduce it to new people, like say my kids, you know, coming along and I'm showing them the best action films along the way. This will be one of my favorites to expose them to and you know, it, it's not just a great Mission Impossible film. It's also a great representation of the performance performances of many of these actors. So it's nice to think about it in that context. Um, the, it also, I don't know if it's, at this point, it feels like action films are going to be action films and they're hit and miss. I sometimes wish that more of the filmmakers that are interested in this genre would take the time to hone their skills a little bit by looking over the shoulder at the work of something like this. So let's see this and say, ah, yeah, you know, that that's a better way to do it. Yeah. We ought to approach it. Our, our films that way too, uh, especially with like, um, I'm just thinking about the diehard movies. Uh, it, it, it got harder and harder and it's got worse. And, uh, I feel like it didn't have to be that way, guys. Why did, why, why did y'all throw in the towel? Why did, why did y'all just, you know, ruin the ride? And it seems like this is also tanked for Liam Neeson's career. It just gets, it gets sillier and weirder and lamer as time goes by and it doesn't have to be this way. So yeah, I, you could say I'm a, I'm a big fan of mission impossible. I I'm actually now, uh, before watching this film, I would have said, you know, guys, all this hype that there is some sort of comparison between what they're doing with the syndicate and what they're doing with James Bond and Spectre, eh, they have nothing in common, not really. But now that I've seen the movie, I'm kind of curious if just by sheer coincidence, these two films wind up having a lot more in common than we anticipated. Uh, this is something I know this is not, I'm, I'm kind of derailing here, but what do y'all think about that? Is, is that something we should expect? Does it sound like syndicate and Spectre are essentially the same concepts? Uh, I really can't speak to it. Clark, can you? Uh, I, I couldn't either. Um, I, I will say that um, this movie has raised the bar pretty high for Spectre, so uh, that movie better have its game on when it comes out. Okay. Yeah, and I, I, I've enjoyed, I enjoyed the last Bond film, but I don't know that I, and, and this is strange to say, I know, but... I don't know that I would put it in the same category as this this uh, Mission Impossible film. Category or class? <sighs> I guess I'm saying I enjoyed this film and the previous Mission Impossible film better than any of the James Bond movies, mm. which I know is is weird. And, and thinking about it, I'm like, that just sounds weird There's to say. There's a lot of James Bond movies. <laughs> well, I'm, 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 when I say that, I'm talking about the Daniel Craig Bond movies. Well, the Daniel Craig Bond movies um, – I think it's kind of comparable to um, 
the Mission Impossible series, but I will agree, this movie and the previous Mission Impossible film are better than anything the Daniel Craig Bond series have served up. I did think Skyfall was uh, a really good movie, and Casino Royale was a pretty good movie, too. Uh, see, I didn't like Casino Royale. Really? I did. I didn't care for Quantum of Solace much, but I, I liked yeah, Casino Royale. Yeah, I didn't Royale. like that one either. Yeah, but definitely uh, uh, Skyfall was the best of, of yeah. the Daniel Craig films so far, and I just don't think it holds a candle to what we've seen in the last two Mission Impossible films. You just don't like British and foreign films, do you, TJ? That's not true. That's not true. <laughs> okay, I don't so, know if you can call the James Bond movies foreign films. Yeah, not really, no. <laughs> so um, I just wanted to say, Joe, to your uh, indictment of Die Hard, that um, I felt like Die Hard all worked really well until the very la- the previous Die Hard. That was a Die Hard 5, the one with uh, what's-his-name, Jay Courtney, and that that film is a disaster. And then the, I, I liked them all before that. I, I didn't really have a bone to pick with any of them. So I just I wanted can to get on board with that. Uh, uh, the first one's the only great one, but they're all fine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, the first yeah, one obviously is the high point of the series, awesome. but, but yeah. uh, I actually, I actually like the fourth one quite a bit. And, and I know most people hate that one. So I'm, I'm the odd man out, but I liked it a lot. I like Justin yeah. long and the things he brought there. So it's all right. I like it better than the third one. Yeah. Yeah. I would say so for sure. Um, so anyway, all right. So getting, getting on to, to my <laughs> thoughts on mission impossible rogue nation, uh, here, here's the thing. I have a. Uh, I, I don't know why. I have a special place in my heart for Brian De Palma's Mission Impossible film, and it's really hard for me to say that any of the the latter films dethrone that film. That that film, and 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 I don't know whether I'm ready to make that judgment yet here about this. Certainly, it has been up to this point my favorite in the series. I just like the first one, and and I know yeah. that technically speaking, and from every objective angle. Ghost Protocol is probably was probably the best film in the series, and now technically speaking, and from every objective standard, this is probably the best film in the series. But I still love the first one. So that being said, I think that this is easily, if it's not the first, you know, not the best film in the series, it's easily the second best now. And I I loved everything about this film. I found very little to complain about with this film. I think that as much as I loved what Brad Bird did, I think Christopher McQuarrie, like you said, Clark is really up the standard here. I think that he he's made it hard for the next director who will come in if it's not Christopher McQuarrie to to top like how do you top that and and it's just it's an interesting conundrum now that we're faced with and I think that this is really uh, probably Christopher McQuarrie's breakout directing uh, role and I hope we see a lot more from him uh, in in the future I think that hopefully this will be the start of something really cool in that in that way. So I know they're making uh, Jack Reacher too. Uh, see, I hope that he can up his game there because Jack Reacher was okay. Yeah, it was fine, but but this is just not even like uh, you go. Wait, this is the same guy that made Jack Reacher. Wow, he went to film school right. since then. <laughs> That's right. really what you think, right? <laughs> so um, I did anyway. <laughs> so yeah, I really loved everything that that happened in this film. I'm really totally on board with Mission Impossible Six. Have you have we heard Clark? I, I haven't even noticed it. Is Christopher McQuarrie directing the next one? I have not heard. Um, I don't know. I, I I hope not, honestly. Uh, as much as I loved his work on this movie, I really like the fact that they change directors every film. Yeah, it keeps so even if it's at the expense of you know uh, getting somebody who isn't quite as great, I'd love to see somebody else offer their take on this world. Well, and we've been on this trend since Mission Impossible 3, where each film is successively better, So and, and each film is a different director. So it'll be interesting to see how this works. 
they're they're altering the formula. They're they're uh, they're upping the game. They're bringing it a lot sooner. So I don't know. We'll we'll see how that works. But really love this film, and I give it four and a half out of five stars. I can easily see Clark why you go five stars. I mean, it's 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 weird to say about a Mission Impossible film, but it really is that good. It's 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 great. That's a great summer flick. I mean, uh, it, it yeah. really transcends the summer flick as far as I'm concerned. And I want to say, too, in fairness to your comments about the first Mission Impossible movie, uh, that's a really good movie. It still holds up really well. I think so. It's the only movie of the bunch that's like an actual bona fide spy movie as opposed to just being an action movie. Yes. And it also, uh, you know, the the heist set piece, I I really don't think anything's ever going to top that in this series. It's just fantastic. No, I, I remember just being blown away by that that entire sequence. Uh, just in oh, it was just it was just incredible. Yeah. So yeah. So since well, since we're bringing up the other films, do y'all have any hopes for the next film besides the the director? Uh, I kind of want to see if they can transition Ethan into a leadership role. Give him field work, but don't make him the primary field worker. You know, the, well, I mean, the that's, primary agent on that the that was field. essentially the role he was in in this film anyway. Uh, he did a lot of action to be primarily yes, but he was, the leader. He's, he's, been, he's basically been primarily the leader since the fourth film. Well, he's been the instigator, but, has, but I'm thinking about uh, John Voight's uh, character and his So you want him to be James Phelps. In the first film. Yeah. I mean, like, work his way into that position. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think he needs to start that way at the beginning of the next film, but I would like to see that he isn't the type of character ethan hunt isn't the type of character that will flat out retire just so that he can be with elsa but rather he just he decides to you know instigate things with a team and and have more interesting you know like dialogue scenes with them while they're doing more of the action and he's just doing a little bit less thoughts i have a hard time seeing ethan hunt accepting that kind of role though Uh, he's it, it just seems so contrary to his nature He's always got to be the first man out there on the front lines of everything, like doing it himself. And sure, it sounds like we're talking about Captain Kirk. I was was about to say, I'm thinking, I'm going flashing back to Captain Kirk here. (laughs) Don't where he's talking to Picard. Don't let them promote you. Don't let them take you out of that chair. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, and 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 I really don't see uh, Ethan sort of sitting back and calling the shots from an office. Uh, I can't see him doing that. I will say, my one hope for the sequel is that. they don't do another. Uh, the IMF has been discredited story since they've done the, that twice in a row. They've done it now. twice. Yes, I was. Yeah, gonna, that was one so. thing I, meant, I forgot to bring up. I forgot to write it down, and that's why I forgot to bring it up. But it's like it, uh, we're yeah, doing this and I again. Mean, this is just different enough where it's not quite the same thing, and they yeah. can get away with it. But but you know, let's just let the IMF be the IMF now that we've done these two movies. Yeah, I agree. I completely agree. That was the other thing I should have put on my kind of eh, iffy, uh, you know, not really a dislike, but kind of iffy on it. That's that's what I should say. So, all right. Well, that concludes our review of Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Clark, if people want to find out more about the things that you do, you have a website and, and stuff that you write and you're on Twitter. Tell, tell the folks about that. Yeah, folks can visit my website. It's 365movieguy.com. I review a movie every day over there, so you can go check that out. Yeah, I'm still going insane, slowly but surely. (laughs) Um, And you can find me on Twitter, at 365movieguy, where you'll find links to the reviews and other thoughts on other things. And you you engage with people there, too. Uh, Yeah, here and there. Uh, I I got engaged my wife years ago, but um, sometimes now and then on Twitter, I will engage people. Good. All right, Joe, where can people find and keep up with your work? 
I am underscore, sorry, I'm underscore Joe Darnell on Twitter. My website is joedarnell.com. And you can also find my other podcasts. They are topbrew.fm and tectonic.fm. That's T-E-C-H tonic.fm. And you can find me on Twitter as well. I am TJ Draper Pro, and uh, you can find the show notes for this episode at moviebyte.com slash mbpodcast slash 147. That is also a great link to share with people. You can get the MovieByte t-shirt uh, for a limited time at moviebyte.com slash t-shirt. Uh, and uh, make sure to get your order in before Monday because the, they will, the, the orders close on Monday, and that will be the end of our limited run t-shirt. Uh, and then our show will be ending shortly after that because we're rebooting it. It's not going away, uh, not completely. We're just retiring the name, so uh, and we're taking a short break. Is uh, Tom Holland going to play you? Yes, we're, we're getting Tom Hollander to play me, actually. Tom Hollander to yes, play you. Yes. That makes sense. Okay. And Good. Tom Holland for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so uh, that's, uh, that's all the goodies, the show notes, uh, our Twitter handles and everything. It was great having you here, Clark, and great discussing such a fun movie. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's always fun. Ta-ta. Ta-ta.